You're listening to the We Lead Well podcast, where well-being matters. The show is brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, headteacherchat.com and the Teach Well Alliance. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the We Lead Well podcast. I'm Vicky Maguire, educational coach and consultant working with school leaders to improve their own and their staff's well-being. I am really delighted today to welcome Hannah Wilson onto the show. Hannah is a leadership development consultant, coach and facilitator. She specialises in a range of areas, including diversity, inclusion and equality and mental health and well-being, which is obviously why I asked her to come and talk to us on the show today. Hannah is an ex-head teacher herself and she actually set up her own school, which is something that we'll talk about in the interview. She's also one of the co-founders of Women Ed. In the interview, we focus quite a lot on leading from your values and how to become a more resilient leader, which actually couldn't be more relevant at this moment in time. I'm certain that you'll take something worthwhile from the interview and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Hannah Wilson, welcome to the podcast. It's really great to have you on. I'm so excited to speak to you today. How are you? I'm really well. Thank you for the invitation, Vicky. Oh, it's, uh, it's an absolute privilege to have you on the show. So can you just start by explaining to the listeners who you are and a little bit about what you do? Sure. I'll start present and work backwards. So I'm currently an independent leadership development consultant, coach and facilitator. Um, and I've done that in the last six months since I left Headship. Um, prior to that, I'm a qualified teacher. I was an English teacher in numerous schools um, in London over a career of like 19 years. So that's always been my kind of my day job, English teacher, leader. Outside of my formal paid work, I um, was one of the co-founders of Women Ed. So five years ago, um, I initiated and co-founded this grassroots community to support women in leadership. And that's then spawned a whole different aspect to my work life and I actually now do a lot of that work now as part of my independent work. Brilliant so you must be really busy. I am I'm really busy it's really interesting okay so I've always had a lot of passion a lot of purpose but quite a lot of my passion projects have been what I do in my own time like evenings weekends and now my passion has, has actually become my purpose in my day job um and it's it's yeah I'm very busy because I think I'm quite topical. Like I really care about mental health and well-being, diversity, equity, inclusion, leadership coaching. And there, there seems to be a lot of synergy in the world right now um, with what schools need and what I can offer. Yeah, definitely. That's obviously one of the reasons why I've started the podcast is to create that sense of well-being support for, for leaders in schools. Um, now, what I'm really interested in is when you were a head teacher, you were lucky enough to create your own well-being culture in a school. So can you talk us through some of the things that you did to create that specific culture that you did? Sure. I th- I'm sure lots of um, leaders will be familiar with the narrative of you kind of inherit a space and you inherit a role and you inherit a culture and you add to it and it grows and it evolves. But quite a lot of the time it's about change in that culture and when I became um, a founding head teacher a designate head teacher of a startup school we had the opportunity to have a blank sheet of paper to think very differently about what could we do from the get-go what could be intentional and deliberate 
around every single choice we made in that school so that it was un underpinned by our values. And what I spoke about a second ago, about what I care about, some of the key values were equ equality, diversity, resilience um, and well-being. So we thought very carefully about, okay, so how can those values be fully integrated into every aspect of the school? From the minute the kids walk through the school gate to their classroom experience and their curriculum, to the inner curriculum, like all those things that happen at breaks and lunches and in enrichment, to what they eat at lunch times, to how our assemblies are framed. So it was a very values driven approach to culture. And it's, and it's really interesting, like starting a, a space from scratch where I, I hand recruited every single person. I did a values recruitment um, process. So I had alignment. But there was things that we kind of took for granted that just uh, just happen in other places, like like how we talk to each other, how we interact, like just all those little simple things. We constantly were like, oh gosh, we forgot about this. We haven't done this. How can we how can we do this through the same lens? So some of the intentional things we did. So I'll talk, talk about the staff first. So just some simple demarcation. We thought about language a lot. So we didn't have a staff room, we had a staff well-being room. And the staff well-being room wasn't for work, it was device-free, it was computer-free, it was a sanctuary for staff to go to. And I think that's really important because we create all these safe spaces for children in school buildings, but where's the safe space for staff? Um, and like no radios and no phones. Like when you're in there having a cup of tea in your 10-minute break and, and you've got all that white noise around you, that's really stressful. Yeah. We created these spaces for the children, such as a nurture room, a thrive room, an art therapy room, um, and, and they were obviously there for staff to access as well. We, we thought quite carefully about sort of like roles and responsibilities and how we framed different things. Like we didn't get anything wrong. Like there's lots of things we didn't get right, because as a startup school, it's really intense and you're a jack of all trades. So a lot of it was the strategic intent over time. Um, we had a four and a half day week, for example. Right. Because I've, I'd read some case studies about some schools where, like, it, by having a half day a week, it means that staff can then do their hairdressing appointments, their post office, pick their kids up from school that day. It meant that the first four days of the week were slightly longer, which we did then get the kind of the fatigue fallout. But it meant that at one o'clock on a Friday, the kids went and we could be intentional about that time. So we just we just tried to think differently about some of the things we could disrupt. Um, I proposed a two-week half-term, the staff didn't want one, so we didn't go for a two-week half-term, but I'd worked in a mat where we had gone to a two-week half-term and actually we saw a massive um, impact on staff well-being, reduction of absence and sickness at the second half of the autumn term, less supply teachers in. So I think it's that, like, I'm a bit of a magpie, like looking at what's working elsewhere and making sure that we can sort of like cherry pick I guess the bits that are working elsewhere and bring it in and the other big thing was flexible working so I've worked in lots of schools where it's a real it's a real conflict to try and negotiate flexible working we advertised every single role as a flexible working role and we had a very flexible team but when you have a flexible team you then need to be intentional about your systems and your processes yeah. to enable full access um, so there's there's things like that we just we thought about like I say it wasn't a, a kind of a perfect model but we made some choices about how we'd grow into being a, a culture of well-being for everybody I think it's really interesting what you say about flexible working because I've done an interview with Sue Plant who's the the head teacher at the John Taylor Free School and she is very supportive of staff who want flexible and part-time working and one of the things that I want to really try to communicate to heads is that it is possible 
to offer part-time and flexible working. Um, did you offer that to the senior leaders in the school as well? Everybody. So I had um, a four-day-a-week assistant head teacher, um, a three-day-a-week assistant head teacher. I had a school business leader who sat on the SLT who started late and finished early. So no, it, was, it was at every strand because quite often the more senior you get, the less flexibility you get around your time as well. So no, that was a, that was a full commitment that from, from the point of advertising, it was about flexible working. And I know Sue really well. So Sue was the year after me as a startup head. So I, I spoke to her a lot about what we'd done and what had worked for us. And I, I blogged and I wrote articles through the first year of being a startup head to, to share our journey and to share some of the things we were doing. I, I think it's very important to offer part-time work in. I think I might have actually considered becoming a head teacher had I been able to do a co-headship role. But, and I think, we might have, I think we might have spoken over Twitter about this at one point that if, if that had been a possibility, it probably would have been something I would have looked at, but it's not not yet become a, a thing that people tend to do, has it? Well, again, flexible working and co-leadership and co-headship tend to be a retention tool rather than a recruitment tool. It tends yeah. to be about reducing attrition. And particularly when women come back from um, mat leave or their second mat leave and and it's a lot to juggle. They negotiate then, and because they're a known entity, schools want to keep them. But you don't see very many adverts leading with that. And I think for a lot of schools, if there was more co-leadership, flexible leadership opportunities at a middle leadership level and at assistant headship level, for example, it wouldn't be such a big deal then to have a co-head. But I have heard some horror stories about co-leadership going wrong as well. I think for those who are considering a co-headship model, you need to think very carefully about who you're doing that with and how it's being contracted and how it's being how it's been set up because it needs to serve both of you. And I think sometimes people see it as a way to get to headship, but the conditions around it need to be very carefully managed. And I guess that's the same with all part-time roles, isn't it? If you're looking at a, a head of department role and you're thinking about maybe doing that on a co on a co-opted basis, there will be difficulties that are thrown up by it, but it's about how you how you approach it more creatively, I guess. Absolutely. And for me, like well-being is the what everyone leads with, but underpinning well-being is workload. And the one thing I couldn't do as a startup head was reduce the workload for my team because yeah. we were such a small team and we were a fully operational school with only one year group. And we all wore multiple hats. So do we not, I got a lot of, we got a lot of pushback. We had some really challenging conversations. We, um, we were a fierce conversation school. So, I, so we had the whole staff were trained in fierce conversations and coaching was part of the culture. But it meant that people were very honest and very direct. And I'm a very honest, direct kind of person, but it, look, it's exhausting when it's constant. And there were things that we couldn't get right in year one. Like we had every good wish in the world, um, but with a small team and a small budget um, and we were spread very thin, it, it was hard. And I think something else to be aware of, that something that was very heightened for me, is that when as a school you are leading with a culture of well-being and your intentionality is really transparent and really visible and really amplified, you then attract um, people to that space. It's a bit, a bit like a cover light and the moths. And I ended up with quite a complex staff because a lot of them would have left teaching. A lot of them had big yeah. HR files. A lot of them were looking for that sort of like beacon of light in the system of a school who was prepared to do it differently. And it then, it meant that from a human resource point of view, we had to be really, really careful and really supportive and, and make sure we really knew our staff. 
And similarly to that, because it was the same offer for the children, we had a very established provision for the kids um, of all those opportunities to really support their mental health and wellbeing. I, like the, the safeguarding we had was just off the chart because we were, we were this safe haven for a lot of very, very vulnerable families and very vulnerable children. And as a county school, we were an academy, but within a county with quite a lot of need, we were being signposted left, right and centre for all the children to come to us. And my small staff were broken by trying to carry that. And I think that piece around, we, like my deputy head was leading the Mental Health and Schools Award. And we got gold after our first year because we did so much to support the, support the community. But she shared a lot of articles with me about like compassion fatigue. And the fact that our staff were like carrying all this trauma for other people. And I think that that whole piece around safeguarding and supervision and being a trauma informed like workplace, it's about how we can really look after our staff. So our staff look after our children. And I think a lot of schools are so focused on looking after the children that the staff kind of get forgotten about sometimes. And I think that it's such a fine balancing act to look after the stakeholder groups. Yes. I was looking at a document produced by a local authority about the response to COVID and virtually 23 pages of the document was about the well-being and the mental health of children. And then there was one box that said staff may also feel some anxiety at this time. And I was, wow. in a way, I wasn't surprised, but I found it so shocking that the whole thing was about children. And my view is if you look after the staff, they will look after the children and you have to put the well-being of the staff first of course the well-being of the children is of vital importance but unless your staff are well you, you're not going to look after the children as well as you could do and i think one, one of the things that comes across very powerfully in what you're saying is about your values and you describe yourself as a values-led leader so can you tell the listeners a little bit more about that and what that means to you sure so do you mean i I applied for headship I think after my 15th year of teaching and I'd worked in um, a kind of a very distinct style of schools um, very fast-paced very all about school improvement and I'd kind of hit a couple of points in my career where I was really frustrated and very unhappy my well-being was suffering but I couldn't quite pinpoint what it was and that's when I started being coached. So I had coaching at assistant headship level, deputy headship level. And I, and that was coaching I'd almost by myself for me, like the whole coaching for the soul, not the role. It was coaching for Hannah, the human being, yeah. rather than Hannah, the senior leader, which is a very different type of coaching a lot of the time. Um, so I'm really privileged to have had coaching with some amazing women like Viv Grant, um, integrity coaching. And it, and it just made, she really helped me unravel and explore where this inner frustration was coming from because I am a really open person and I am really candid and, I, and I've, got a, I've got a strong sense of authenticity. I couldn't work out why I was so in conflict. And actually we got to the root of it and it was the fact that my values weren't in alignment with where I was working. Sometimes actually my values aren't in alignment with the system and that's even a bigger problem, isn't it? Yeah. But like I, I was getting promoted and my, my career was a very fast paced acceleration and I was getting paid more and promoted and having bigger remits and, and, and in some ways thriving and loving it. But was I being intentional about the spaces I was working in? And I'm not saying those places didn't have values, but my values weren't a currency at that point. They, I couldn't articulate them. So I wasn't then using them as a lens to look at where I was working. And actually, when you then are really clear on your values and you look at where you're working, you realise that you're, it, it, it's not a good fit. 
So then when I became a head, I worked very closely with VBE, values-based education, about how we could become a values-based culture from the get-go and how we could scope out the staff and their values and create some synergy. And then how the values then sort of like really became the pillars of our, all of our choices and our curriculum. And then I, I, like I lived and died by those values. And some of our values were quite political. Like having a value of diversity when you're in Oxfordshire it's quite tricky. A yeah. value of equality as a, as, a, as a strong woman and a powered woman, as a feminist, that jars quite a lot of people. And like we had dads talking at parents' evening, like, where's the men in this place? There's always like women, but where's the men on SLT? We had men on SLT, but the top three <laughs> were women. When do you ever hear people talk about the, 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 the opposite conversation? Yeah. So that values piece was really, really, really key. And from my own well-being point of view, it kept me very grounded because my whole point about values are they are your anchors they are your roots they are what center you that you know who you are what you do why you do it and if you and that whole piece about integrity like everyone talks about integrity everyone talks about ethics but they're quite abstract they're quite yeah. conceptual whereas when you are sort of like absolutely grounded in your values i think that makes it easier and, and they give you they give you purpose don't they your yeah, values yeah. are what drive you well they drive your behaviors and yeah. i think the, one of, the, one of the things, one of the conflicts, I think, and the dissonance is that lots of people now talk values, but they don't walk values. And my thing is, your values need to be lived. Mary Wyatt says lived, not nominated. They need to drive your behaviours and your actions and your choices. Before we find out more about values-led leadership with Hannah, I just want to talk to you a little bit about our partner, headteacherchat.com. Headteacherchat discusses lots of topics, from how to support pupils with learning, how to support parents and the many issues that come with leading a school. The aim of Headteacher Chat is to support headteachers and school leaders who are in a challenging and often lonely role. They do this by offering lots of information for schools to tap into. For example, they have lots of fantastic education companies on their database for leaders to discover, as well as leadership templates to download. They've written product reviews for leaders who are looking for products for their school. And this year, they've even launched the very first School Leader Planner, especially designed to help leaders to be productive and organised. If you'd like to hear more about Head Teacher Chat, you can find them on their website at www.headteacherchat.com. Head Teacher Chat. It's what head teachers are talking about. Now let's get back to the interview and find out more about values-led leadership. And I think now we've got into this currency, this kind of like culture of everyone talks values, but you know this mismarketing, you know that people are saying they're something or believe in something, but they're not. And that comes down to lack of self-awareness because they probably haven't got a coach um, and, and kind of the gift of feedback. So from a well-being point of view for me, it served me and it, it created that alignment for our team and our children. Oh, they got it. Like they just got it. The kids were so articulate and so passionate about our values but I did get into some dodgy water with local press and it got escalated to national press. And that was all about the social fallout of the value of diversity and some of the things we were doing as a school. And that did impact me momentarily and my well-being because I, there was like a hate campaign. I was all over social media, I was in the press. 
but actually it then made us think even more about the conviction of our actions um, and actually like all of the values feed into and out of each other so the value of well-being and the value of diversity the value of resilience like you can't have well-being without being resilient if you from a diverse background your well-being is more likely to be affected because you can't show up and be authentic you need to be even more resilient to be in the school system and you yeah. begin to create these connections between the values um, so they've definitely kept me sane and kept me grounded in my career one of the one of the values that you mentioned there is resilience and i think at the moment head teachers are finding it difficult to to really find that resilience i think they're coming to the to, to the end point what would you what would you advise head teachers at this point so i think resilience is similar to well-being and the fact that we're, we're quite often in a deficit mindset a deficit approach where the tank's empty and we're trying to fill it up again and actually for me resilience is about the the daily habits the the routines and the rituals that we create that become part of our lifestyle and serve us so i've just qualified as a resilient leadership coach and consultant and there's this amazing platform where it's all framed through like four elements and 12 facets but it gives you um reflective frames to think about yourself and it just encourages you each week each day to really think about like how you're showing up and how you're behaving and how your values are shaping those behaviors and how actually by stopping and pausing and reflecting that helps. And I think the biggest thing for school leaders and head teachers in particular is this, there's no thinking time. Like no. schools are so frenetic. Pre-lockdown schools are frenetic and intense. You can go a whole day without lunch or wee. And like one of my friends and family who aren't teachers, they're like, don't be, don't be ridiculous, you're over-exaggerating. I was like, no, I had a soggy tuna sandwich at 4.30. That was my lunch. I've had no tea or water all day. I'm desperate for a wee. Um, like it's all those kind of things, isn't it? So um, so for me, like resilience needs to be seen as a muscle that we need to flex, a muscle that we need to exercise. And then when we do those things, the muscle memory then kicks in. And then when we are in that moment of like conflict, and, and we talk about the urgency can, um, spectrum, so you have your kind of like your, your crisis, your chaos. We're constantly on this continuum of going in and out of equilibrium and disequilibrium. And the status quo is being disrupted. But how self-aware of we, of how we react? Do we know our own triggers? How socially aware of we of our teams and, and the people we work with and their triggers? How environmentally aware of we of the things that actually create those triggers in the first place? And going back to your point about a culture of well-being, like there's such a narrative of toxic schools and there's so yeah. many toxic schools out there. But every teacher and every leader thinks they're values-led and thinks they're ethical. Well, if we were all values-led and we were all ethical, how have we got all these toxic schools? And I think that there's, that there's so, many, so many tensions between how we think we are, how we are. And I'm sure there's people who would criticise me and say, well, you said you were this, but you're not that, because we've all got our own lens through which we look at things yeah. through. That, that's that's really interesting the lens that we look at things through because as a head teacher often i think that toxic environment is created when the head teacher looks specifically through their own lens of accountability their job being on the line if they don't get this right and the outcomes in the summer aren't what what the governors are expecting then they might be out of a job in september and i think that's where the the dissonance comes between your values and actually the way you're able to live those values because of those systems of accountability and maybe the the, the threat of Ofsted. So how, how can head teachers approach that idea of accountability? And 
it's an inter- it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I think there's a couple of things there, and I'm not critiquing heads who don't teach because my school wasn't a full school, and I'm sure I would have got to the point where I wasn't teaching. But I always taught as a school leader, and I think keeping myself grounded within the system and knowing what I was I was, I was asking of the teachers or what we were asking of the teachers, and as a deputy head and having a year eleven English class, I'd say what. We're doing another set of mocks. I haven't got time to mark another set of mocks. So actually, sometimes there's people making decisions and they're not part of the impact line. Whereas actually, when you are part of the impact line, you might push back on some of the things you're asking everyone to do. So I think I think that's one point. I think the accountability piece, I think a big thing for me is there's a lack of trust in the system. And I think during lockdown and school closure, people have had to work more autonomously and people have had to be trusted. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a few people who've taken the mic, but a lot of people have just got on with the job um, and I've actually loved working from home and having less disruption and more time to do the things that you get no time to do in a school. And I think, um, I hope that there's a, a learning point there for schools and school leaders in the system about how we can use think time differently how we can do virtual meetings how we can do virtual cpd how we can do have more flex in a system that's more inclusive of everyone where we don't have to all be in the building in the room at the same time to engage with something yes we absolutely need connection and relationships and we need to have face-to-face time but a lot of things can be done off-site in a more flexible way and then, and then the accountability bit is about like having that absolute clarity and transparency about the kind of the why we're doing things and what the what needs to look like, but allowing people to explore their own how. And I think the, the kind of the culture of micromanagement is where there's not trust and people get told how to do the how and we, we basically become puppets and, and clones in the system. So I think, I think there's so many things for us to think about. Um, I can't actually remember the original question about accountability, but I think, I think it was it, about it was about the dissonance between a head who who is values driven but also feels the pressure of outside agencies or governors and and is is constantly anxious about the the security of their job essentially well indeed there's that as well isn't there and, and it wasn't something I, I ever thought about but I did become a victim of the system and when I when I resigned I got put on gardening leave and and that was a real emotional roller coaster um to go on and I was really honest about that experience and the impact it had on me because like when I went when I tweeted about being put on gardening leave a load of people came forward and shared with me their their journeys and we don't talk about it there's so many mm-hmm. things that are taboo and stigmas and it is happening and I think that my learning point about my headship journey was I probably should have been a head teacher of a standalone autonomous school because actually for me the pressures were my relationships with the mat and the kind of the wider piece um so I think that I think I think how we choose our roles and how we choose our schools is really important because it is about fit and it is about um making sure that there's that alignment because if, if you haven't got alignment it's like you're constantly pushing water uphill and that's not good for your well-being and I think a, a, a kind of similar lens to that is I do so much work in the diversity equity and inclusion space and we do need to be really really mindful of the impact of of things on particular groups of people so research shows that you're more likely to have mental health and well-being issues if you're a person of color if you're a person with a disability a person from lgbtqi community and quite often that lens you talked about that is being looked through at the staff is a is a straight white male lens mm-hmm. and actually we need to think about the kind of the patriarchal structures and systems in our school system and how they don't serve a big proportion of the workforce because two-thirds of teachers are female so actually that there's things that the disruption i think has been quite welcomed yes it's caused a lot of stress but we've disrupted some things that needed disrupting and would have taken a long time to disrupt and i'm hoping that actually 
in the post-COVID kind of like months and years, we can hold on to some of the things that we learn about that disruption that actually worked. And, and you value coaching. And I think that can be something that can support head teachers to, to live their values through what they're doing as well. So if a head teacher is thinking about introducing coaching into their school or about taking a coach on for themselves, what would you say to them? I would say, first of all, don't get coaches in for your staff if you're not having coaching yourself. And I think it's really interesting about coaching. Coaching and mentoring fascinates me um, because there seems to be this thing that the more senior you get, you don't need a mentor. And I'm a believer that every person in a new job needs a mentor for their first year because they need support on yeah. how to do the job. And then once you've been mentored as a head department, head of year assistant, head deputy, head, head teacher, then you can be coached to be like you in that role, but you need to get the basics technically right first. So I think that just really staggers me that it all becomes about coaching. But the whole coaching piece is that there is a real lean towards coaching becoming part of school culture, but it's become in some places a thing that's done to you rather than a thing that you buy into. Um, and I think there needs to be an understanding of coaching and the power of coaching. And I'd like to see every head teacher in the country having a coach and when I shared my journey of gardening leave I got involved with um, James Pope and Heads Up and Heads Up for HTs is a space to support head teachers and he's working with the unions on a, a commitment that head teachers entitlement should be they should have a coach like every DSL should have a supervisor um, and yeah. should have supervision sessions and that yeah. doesn't happen all the time like this needs to be built into school culture and school CPD budgets and the governor should be asking who's your coach this year so I think don't get coaches in for other people. You haven't got a coach yourself. And then for me, it is that cascade. So I worked with a company called Graydon a few years ago, and they do this waved coaching approach where it's coaching triads. And you kind of like each year you train another nine people because then that's 27 people getting coaching. And over a course, of like four or five years, the whole staff body's got a coach and they're in a triad. And it's a very democratic model, but it's, a, but it's slow, it's intentional, it's deliberate. And in the school where I'm working, that's the approach that we are taking. It's a, it's a choice that staff are making to do it and be involved in it. And then when staff see how it works and the impact that it can have on your professional life and your progress and your own professional development, then staff will buy into it. And like you're saying, it's, four or five, it's a four or five year commitment to actually making something work. It's not, it's not an off-the-shelf solution to something. You can't just send someone on a course in coaching and expect them to come back into your school and, and introduce coaching. Indeed. And I think we need to be really clear about coaching with a big C and coaching with a small C, because there's a lot of people out there who claim to be coaches and they're not qualified. And it's, it's like there's so many different modes of coaching. It's finding the right coaching tool, the right coaching platform, the right coaching lead to that, 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 that there's an alignment I guess in the approach to coaching and I think we need to find a different name for the remedial coaching that is becoming quite a thing in schools where it's like coaching for capacity and coaching for competence and that's about sort of like picking up those teachers who are struggling or leaders who are struggling and sorting them out to me that's not coaching that's it's been done to you yeah so let's not let's not call it's it coaching. Te it's teaching that isn't it or it's mentoring it's like you're saying that there's a difference between coaching and mentoring and you have to know when someone needs a mentor because they're not able to come up with the solutions and the ideas for themselves because they, they don't have the experience perhaps if we're talking about nqts for example whereas 
coaching relies on the person who you are coaching having the answers within themselves and you have to be able to identify where a person is in terms of their need for mentoring or coaching or teaching and I don't think you can coach someone in a capability capacity because they need somebody who's going to be there and support them in a different way so just on that in in that sort of sense would you say coaching is a is a tool to support well-being in a school yeah so during lockdown i um offered to run a load of peer support circles a lot of a lot of people in my in my personal and professional circles were just struggling with lockdown and they needed a space and i created peer support circles and i had like seven circles of like 35 people and we met every week for an hour and a couple of the head teachers who joined those spaces have then asked me to create those spaces in their own schools. And it's been really interesting. And, and quite a lot of organisations do this, but schools don't. Like creating those circles, those talking circles, those listening circles, because I think people who aren't in education don't get that. You can spend a whole day at school sometimes and be in your classroom and not see another adult. So yes, it's a relational, relational building. And yes, there's a lot of connections, but like you might have a completely opposite timetable to your best mate at work and not see them all week. And I think, and I think it's fascinating that schools are so reliant on relationships, but we don't necessarily serve those relationships and create those spaces. And then when you do have a meeting, it's always kind of a quick fire. We've got 45 minutes, we've got 20 things on the agenda, let's get it done. And the, the social side, <clears throat> sorry, the social side of school was always really important to me. Like I've always been heavily involved in the going to the pub every Friday night and going on all the staff socials because actually those relationships are what served me when I was a teacher and a leader. So I think it's how we can carve out the time in schools to create those spaces where like really meaningful conversations and like student voice, staff voice, parent voice, they're almost like buzz terms in some ways, but actually when do we truly listen? When do we truly get the feedback, which we might not like? And like I did, a, we did a staff survey in our second year of being a school and some of the wellbeing feedback like wasn't what I wanted to hear, but we needed, we need, it was that kind of like you said we did approach. We needed to listen to it because yeah. some of the stuff we were doing wasn't meeting the needs of everybody. We were trying really hard and it kind of like, was like, oh my God, like how much more can we do? But clearly what we're doing is not enough. So we need to pivot and we need to do something differently. So for me, it's about creating those spaces for those conversations where co and, and having that kind of coaching style, because all of our staff had had the fierce conversations training and we did it every year and kind of like um, spiraled it up. It just gave people that shared language. And then because we had the values piece, that also gave us shared language. So it meant that we could have really robust conversations that were structured but not structured like they were kind of like you had a kind of a shared framework I guess to unpack some of those things and there was also a lot of trust and it was a culture whereby we wore our hearts on our sleeves and that can be quite tiring sometimes too but we always kind of knew where we were all at and I think I think sometimes there's schools or a school of thought whereby we should just like rock up and be professionals and do our job and leave but we're human beings and I, I very much believe in the holistic approach to people development it's interesting that the word relationships keeps coming up in the in the interviews that i'm doing and i think it, it in terms of what you're saying in and in those relationships it's about communication it's about listening and it's about being able to be open and honest and if people are telling you things take it on board even if it's hard and difficult to listen to take it on board and think about what you're going to do in response to it 
totally uh, totally the kind of sort like communication for yeah. me so I think I've got like 30 different coaches at the moment and I think the biggest gripe for all of them will be communication in the organizations and that's schools and non-schools and I think there's that everyone thinks they're a good communicator everyone thinks they're a good listener but we need to get the feedback sometimes on what we can do differently or what we can do better and it is that piece about okay so we're listening but are we listening for what we want to hear is there a confirmation bias kicking in so so yeah i find communications fascinating it's a bit similar to to seeing something through your own lens and 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 hearing something in your own head sometimes isn't it making sure that you're actually switching that perspective and actually putting yourself in the other person's shoes and, and empathy as well I guess there's, there's, there's an element of that to it to finish off the question that I ask everybody on the show is if you could give head teachers one tip to help them to improve well-being in their own school what tip would you give them I'm gonna, I'm gonna feel like a hypocrite saying this because I didn't get this right but I wish I got it right I think it's about being a visible role model. And I think it, I mean, it's about that, what boundaries are we setting for ourselves and how are we reinforcing those boundaries and how are we modeling those boundaries? And I was always that human sponge, like mopping up everyone else as a deputy head and as a head teacher. Um, and I did, get, I did get burnt out a few times. And I think like creating that space for yourself where you've got really strict self-discipline around what you need to serve you, that's where your resilience comes from. That's where your well-being comes from. And then you can show up and be the best version of you for your team. And you're also giving permission to other people to leave early to go for yoga or to go for a run or and all the kind of things that they need. So I think for me, quite often, well-being becomes about kind of like talking the talk, but it is about walking the walk as well. Brilliant. I think that's I think that's really great advice. It's about looking after yourself as well, isn't it? And, and sometimes p- p- putting yourself first before other people because if you don't look after yourself you can't look after anyone else can you indeed yeah um if people want to get in touch with you hannah where can they find you i am sometimes on twitter i tweet as ethical leader i blog as ethical leader i've also got a website so it's hannah high from wilson um and i also run diverse educators so please pop in and say hello at either of those two sites brilliant and i will put all that in the show notes as well thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today some of the things you've said i think heads will find particularly useful and i've just really enjoyed our conversation so thanks very much my pleasure thank you for inviting me it was an absolute pleasure to talk to hannah wilson today and i just want to say thanks again to hannah for taking the time out and what is a really busy schedule to come and talk to us on the show i was really fascinated um, about what she said, how she created a well-being culture as a founding head teacher in a school and how all the decisions were values based, including the recruitment process. And another thing that I loved the idea of was what she said about the idea of creating a sanctuary or a safe space for staff rather than um, a staff room. Uh, where there's work equipment, computers and devices and all sorts of things so that staff can escape from the busyness of the school environment and have a quiet space for themselves. Because I think we create those things for the children in schools, but often we overlook the staff when we do things like that. We focus an awful lot on the mental health and well-being of the children and probably we don't do that enough with staff 
So it was great to hear about how Hannah created a culture of well-being in her school, so much so that her school became a beacon of light as a school that's prepared to do things differently. And that really helped Hannah in the recruitment process. And it was also interesting that she supported what we talked to Sue Plant on the show about a couple of weeks ago in that she was able to offer flexible and part-time working for all the roles in her school, including senior leaders, because she was prepared to do things differently. She was prepared to take a risk and she looks, looks after the staff and then the staff looked after the children. And, and this is a message that I'm taking really strongly from the interview with Hannah is if you look after your staff, your staff will look after the children. So we need to spend more time thinking about how we can take care of our staff. And she also talked about the importance of coaching in this respect and how it can provide teachers and leaders with a greater understanding of who they are and their values and how they want to lead. What, talking about who you are, what you do, and why you do it, and giving a greater sense of purpose to teachers. And that's one of the ways that we can encourage staff to remain in the profession and to keep on doing what they're doing. Hannah also talked a lot about resilience in leadership. She's doing lots of work in that area and I would highly recommend you go and have a look at her website, Diverse Educators, and find out a bit more about the work that she's doing because there is some really interesting stuff going on. And that just about wraps up the show for today. So I look forward to talking to you in the next episode. In the meantime, take care of yourself, take care of your staff and lead well. The We Lead Well podcast was brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, headteacherchats.com and the Teach Well Alliance.